What a wonderful morning of worship we've already had. And for those of us who came on Friday night, what a great time at the Reformation celebration this year. It is coming up on the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation on the 31st of October. So we celebrate that once a year as a church and the kids dress up and adults dress up. And I think my favorite costumes this year were baby, baby Luther and baby Katerina. The little babies dressed up as Martin Luther and his wife. That was great. So if you didn't uh, join us this year, try to next year and uh, wear a costume of one of the reformers. That would be a lot of fun. Well, we return this morning to the book of Romans and we're looking at something the reformers did indeed preach. God's election. God's election. God's giving of mercy, choosing whom he would save. And that really is the topic of Romans chapter 11. Last week, I told you it was a very hard verse to accept, a hard verse to take in, a hard verse for our modern ears to hear. And I want to begin by reading there. And then today we're going to look at Romans 9, 19 through 23. But you'll see here in, in Romans 9, 14 to 18, the first objection that Paul receives. Because he taught on election. He said that God chose Jacob and he rejected Esau. And so that raises a lot of questions in the reader's mind of the epistle to the Romans. It raises questions today as people study and hear about this doctrine of election and God's reprobation, God's rejection. And so let's read now from Romans 9, 14, all the way through 23. What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you and in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use, and another for dishonorable use? And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction? And in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And we'll stop there. I've entitled today's sermon, God's Glory in election. And that's where we're going. That's where we'll end up, God's glory in election. But Paul's going to get us there through an argument that he brings forth from Scripture here. And he's quoting Old Testament verses and he's pointing us back to other verses in the Old Testament. And he's making a case. Really, you could entitle this the defense of God's glory in election. Or John Piper has entitled his whole book on Romans 9, The Justification of God. Proving, and that's what Paul's doing, that God is not at all unrighteous. That God indeed is doing what God does. 
exercising his sovereignty, exercising his judgment on sinners, and exercising his mercy on those that he chooses. Now, in the last sermon, uh, really two sermons, we covered verses 14 through 18. And we looked at the two ideas, the two doctrines that Paul brings out here. That God chooses whom we will have mercy on. And he revealed that even back in Exodus chapter 33, where he told Moses, as he was walking by Moses, as Moses had to hide himself in the cleft of the rock, God revealed his name, God revealed his glory, and he said this statement, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. That was two weeks ago. Last week, we looked at the doctrine of rejection or reprobation in 17 and 18. And this is God's hardening, hardening on the sinner, the one who's already a sinner, but God hardens his heart. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he says, this is why I raised up Pharaoh in order to demonstrate my power in you. He's talking to Pharaoh in that verse through Moses, of course. And he's saying, go tell Pharaoh, I've raised you up to do this very thing, to show everyone in the world how great my power is, how great my name is. God does everything for his own glory, and for his own name. God is perfect. God is holy. God is just. Sinners get justice, and those that God chooses to give mercy to get God's mercy. But remember, and I've said this many times in these verses, no one gets injustice. God is always righteous. God is always just. No one gets injustice. Every sinner that does not come to faith gets justice. They get punishment. All those who believe, those that are chosen by God, get God's mercy, God's grace. No one gets injustice though. God is never unjust, unrighteous, or sinful at all. So after answering that objection, now Paul comes to the second objection. So the first one was, that's unfair, God. You can't choose people based on no merit of their own. You can't do that. Paul answers that. Now he comes to the second one. This is a big one. This is one that we hear often as we're talking to our friends and maybe family or maybe unbelievers about election. And this is the first point here I want to show you. The objection is God's sovereign will erases our free will and human responsibility. It's a long one, but that incorporates all the words I want to get into the point here. This is about human free will, human responsibility, God being able to put on us the sin that we've committed on our account, people say, look, if what you say is true, and they're going to say this to Paul right here in the text, but they say it to us sometimes, talking about it, preaching on it. If what you say is true, what about our free will? And what about human responsibility? How can God blame us if he's already decided? How could God blame us for our sin if he's the one who hardens hearts? So the objector here is picking up this idea that Paul just talked about. In verse 18, he finishes verse 18, he hardens whom he desires. The word desire there is that he wills that it would happen so it comes to pass. God decrees such a thing and indeed it happens. And we saw it happen with Pharaoh. So here is how the objection is in verse 19. Paul states, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? So Paul is, he knows this objection is out there. He is already jumping and putting it in here. He's jumping the gun and saying, I'm not waiting for this objection when you read my letter. Here it is. Here's the objection. 
Why does he still find fault? Why does he blame us for our sin? If God is hardening hearts, then how can a sinner be at fault? The unbeliever cannot be blamed, can he? If this is true, Paul, if if God rejects people and hardens them, then how can he send anyone to hell? And I think the objector here is trying to say, Paul, your doctrine doesn't work. Your doctrine of election doesn't work. It must be something other than what you've taught here. It doesn't work. This sounds like mere fatalism. This is just fatalism, Paul. Everything is inevitable. Mankind has no will, no responsibility. We're just robots going through life. Therefore, Paul, your doctrine that you've talked about here in this chapter can't be true. Now, he states a second question. And this further extends the first question. For who resists his will? To resist here means to be in opposition to, to set oneself against. It is used to speak of false teachers in 2 Timothy 3.8. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, disqualified in regard to the faith. Who can oppose God? If that's what he's decreed, if that's what he's desired, then who can resist it? If he hardens, who can resist his will? Now notice, Paul's not saying, as some translations put, who is able to resist or who can resist. That's a question of ability. No, the the objector and the way Paul writes it here is assume no one can resist God's will. He's God. No one can resist his will. So the question then becomes, well, if no one can resist his will, then why are we to blame? Why are sinners to blame for their sin? The objector is not questioning at all if God's will can be resisted. The Bible over and over says God's will cannot be resisted. Not his hidden will. Not his decretive will. Not his will where he's decreed all things that come to pass. Now we know the will in scripture that we obey him can be resisted. We know Adam and Eve resisted God's commands, God's law. We know throughout the Bible, Israel resisted it. We know people in the New Testament resisted it. We know sometimes we resist. That's not what Paul is talking about. That's not what the objector is talking about. He's talking about God's hidden will, his decretive will, that he has decreed those whom he would save and those that he would reject. Now, I want to state this is not the genuine believer coming to the Bible with questions about election. This is not the person who's grown up in a church that's never taught an election. And now they come to the Bible or they come to this church and they hear, Who are you, O man, to talk about God like that? No, this is not the genuine believer searching scripture, searching to understand God's word, searching to see what election really is. And so they can believe it wholeheartedly. This is the person who's saying very pridefully, I don't like what God is doing. It's arrogance. It's pride. Martin Luther said the apostle here, Paul quotes the the question in the sense of those who contend against God in a wicked and arrogant way. They're enraged at God. They murmur against him as if he were a criminal and indeed as one who is on the same level as they. This is not the believer who says, help me understand. This is the unbeliever. Or the false brethren who says, I hate this doctrine. I hate that God is in control of my life. John Calvin said, they make God guilty here instead of themselves. 
Who can be blamed if God has decided all things? It's really your fault, God. Isn't that kind of what Adam did? It's really your fault, God. You gave me this woman. She got the fruit. She gave it to me. So it all traces back to you. We're always looking for excuses on our sin, aren't we? Aren't we always looking for someone else to blame? And sometimes people blame even God himself. This is the unbeliever maybe who says, if what you say is true, Paul, then I am free to sin. Because God's already predestined that I would sin. He's already foreordained that I would not be saved. I'm without excuse. This is what the liberal commentator in 1932, C.H. Dodd, wrote in his commentary. He said, has the potter no right over the clay? It is a well-worn illustration, but the trouble is that man is not a pot. Man will ask, why did you make me like this? And he will not be bludgeoned into silence. Dodd says, it is the weakest point in the whole epistle. Paul has just represented God as a non-moral despot. When Paul, normally a clear thinker, becomes obscure, it usually means that he's embarrassed by the position he's taken up. So he's writing scripture. And here, here's a, a commentator about a hundred years ago. And there's still commentators today who say, we cannot stomach this doctrine. And God, you will give us an answer. Even though Paul says right here that he is God and does not have to answer us. This could be a professing believer who says, you know, I could never worship a God like that. If God chooses some people to be saved, I could never worship a God like that. Well, the problem is elections all over the Bible. And I'm, I'm hoping that this is some new believer who doesn't yet understand. And they just need to be shown the scriptures. But if they're shown the scriptures and it's explained to them and they still resist with all their might, that's concerning. Because Paul's talking to somebody who is angered over God's sovereignty here. Some say, my God does not elect based on his own sovereign will. But based on what people choose to do, you people have an evil God. There are Christians out there who say, just preaching a text like this, the way I'm preaching it, is evil. And it makes God evil. And yet Paul is responding to such an objection right here. Now he's going to give the answer here in 20 to 23. That, that's his answer. But let's look. Before we look at what he does say, let's look at what he doesn't say. Because he doesn't really give the answer we would expect today. If you walked into a seminary or you got to talk with John MacArthur or when Arshish Sproul was alive... They would give you, I think, a different answer. They would point to this verse, but they would go to other verses and do a, a theological answer. Paul does give a theological answer, but it's not one we would expect. So let's look at what he doesn't say, though. First, he does not offer what we would consider this nice, tight, logical answer to the tension that exists between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. He just doesn't give us a whole tome, a book here on solving that tension. The Bible doesn't fully solve that tension. It says, here's the truth. God is absolutely sovereign over everything that happens and man is responsible for his sin. And like Spurgeon said, there goes those parallel railroad tracks and I don't see where they meet, but there they go into the distance and maybe in eternity we'll understand, but we won't understand all things that ever have existed because God is the only one who does. So he doesn't say that. He does not also, secondly, he does not go into theological dissertation on free will. 
He doesn't give a theological dissertation on free will here. He will talk about free will as he commands the unbeliever, unbelieving Jews and the unbeliever Gentiles to believe in Christ, to have faith in Christ in chapter 10. He will get into that. But Paul does not say, well, you know, you've misunderstood. Let me go into the dissertation on free will. No, he's talking about God in chapter 9. He's talking about God's sovereignty. And that's where he camps on God. He does not say that man is completely free to reject God. He does not say that man is completely above God in his free will. In fact, if you read Romans 3, which Paul expects you to do by now, Romans 3 has said what? Man is bound in sin. If you were to summarize Romans 1, 2, and 3, mankind is a slave to sin. And a slave obeys his master, and the master is sin, and the master won't let the slave get outside of the boundaries that the master has set. So what can an unbeliever do? They have a free will to sin. Now I'm answering the question about free will before we jump into what Paul said. But if you want to read up on that, Romans 3. Or just go back to Romans 8.8. 8. Romans 8.8, 8, Paul's already said, Those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. If you want to read about that, read Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will. Luther had a debate with Erasmus on this very subject. Now, you will also see teaching that once a man is regenerated by the Spirit, he has the will, he has the free will, the free desire to now please God by his choices. So now he's not a slave to sin. He's been born again. He's a slave to Christ. Christ now sets the boundaries because Christ is sovereign. God is sovereign. And man has the ability to serve Christ, to please him, to love him, to have desires for Christ. If you want a complete theological treatment on that, read Jonathan Edwards' Freedom of the Will. But Paul's not giving us those answers in this text. Thirdly, Paul does not say that the objector has misunderstood. Notice, if he believed, if Paul believed, and if this was true, that God looked forward in time and he saw what you would do and that's how he chooses people, here's the place Paul would say it. If that was true, if God just looked forward in time and said, this guy will have faith and this guy will not have faith, so I'm choosing the one that will have faith and rejecting the one who doesn't have faith. Here's how he would say it. Well, you've, un, you've misunderstood, objector. Let me tell you, God just looks forward in time. That's where Paul would put it, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't. He could have said that. In fact, all throughout church history, people have realized this. Even Augustine back in 400 AD said, here was the place for Paul to answer that God foreknew the merits of every man. Still, he does not say this, but he takes refuge in God's judgments and mercy. So that's what Paul does not say. Let's look at what he does say. What does Paul say? I'm going to give you four reasons that Paul says the objection is illegitimate. He doesn't really answer it like we would want to. He throws it out and talks about something else that's related, but not the answer that the objector would want. Illegitimate means unlawful or improper. It's not the right question. And Paul doesn't have to answer it. We don't have to answer every question thrown at us. If an unbeliever comes and they start asking you questions, you don't have to answer every question they ask. You can ask them questions back like Paul does. Who are you to question God? Remember that when you're, when you're talking with unbelievers or maybe a confused Christian, ask questions. 
It's okay to ask questions. It's okay not to have the answer and study it yourself. And it's okay to have the answer, but not always give it. Jesus did that often with the Pharisees. He had answers. They would ask him. They would demand answers. He did not always give them the answers they wanted. Number one, the first reason why Paul says the objection is illegitimate is the inability of man to put God in the dock. The inability of man. We cannot put God in the dock. To put God in the dock is to put him on the witness stand. It's a term they use in England. C.S. Lewis wrote a book on this, God in the Dock. He states, C.S. Lewis did that ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, though, the roles are quite reversed. Man is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, he's ready to listen to it. Speaking of man, the trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Man is the judge and God has to take the witness stand and answer to man. That's putting God in the dock. Here's how Paul says it. He says, on the contrary, quite opposite than the objection you stated. Quite opposite, on the contrary, to what you said about God finding fault with you. And how is that right? Who are you, O man? Who are you? He may even have somebody specifically in mind here that's brought this to him before. Because he says, O man. Not just in general like he did back in 14. But he says, who are you, O man? Very emphatic here. You're a man anthropos in Greek. You're just a man. God created you. You're a man and he is God. You notice man is at the beginning here and God at the end of this question. Who are you, O man? He is God and you are not God. And he says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? To answer back to God is to criticize him. To say that he's done something wrong or he's got to give an answer to what he's done. He must tell me the answer and why he's done what he's done. This is going beyond even Job. Even Job in the end finally said, you know, I don't, I don't know anything, God. You are powerful. You are mighty. He bowed down to God. This person says, you give us an answer, God. And it's an, op- an opposition. It's opposing. It's antagonistic. It's an interrogation of God. This is like the Pharisees telling Jesus, you better do what we say and give us the answer we want. And if you don't, they said, we will take care of you. And notice this contrast. You, O oh man, and God. In other words, man has no right, no right to accuse God of unrighteousness. You have no right to blame God for your sinful actions. God is not on trial before man. Man is on trial before God. And Paul's just bringing that out. He's saying, I throw this out. You're out of order. You can't put God on the witness stand. He is God. He's the judge. When it comes to difficult questions in the Bible, God's perfect holiness and righteousness and justice must be assumed. Whenever you come across something in the Bible, don't start thinking, Well, does this mean God is sinful? Maybe God has done something wrong. No, no, no. God is always perfect. He's always holy. He's always just. So if you're confused somewhere, it's on your part, not something that God has done or said. The Bible says that man is responsible for his sin. 
And you have to believe that as well. That's assumed. Man's always responsible for his sin. And God is sovereign over everything. And he's perfect and he's holy and he's just. It's one of the reasons you should study the attributes of God. To know them so well. That you never have any cause to doubt who God is. The problem is with us. Not with God. Who do we think we are that we can presume to call God to account? We cannot do that. Even in our personal lives, be careful. When God puts you under trial and tribulation, be careful that you don't try to call Him to account. You come to Him in a loving way. You come to Him submitting to Him. And you pray like David did. Oh Lord, how long must I suffer through this? How long, oh Lord? But you don't say, God, you better give me the answer I want right now. We're not God. Secondly, the second reason why the objection is illegitimate, the creator-creature distinction. Very similar to what I just talked about. Paul goes more in-depth here now and gives an illustration. This creator-creature distinction is what theologians use to describe the complete difference in nature between God and us. It's not that we're little gods, like some false teachers say. It's not that God is a big man or this granddaddy up in the sky. No, God is completely other. He is different. He is the creator. We are the creature. Creature means the created ones. We have been created by the creator. God's not a part of creation. He's infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That summarizes His attributes. The creature, though, mankind, us, we're on the other hand created by God and we're not finite. God is infinite. We are not. We can change. God cannot. And since the fall, we are sinful. God is not. Look back to Romans 1. Look to Romans 1. This is how how Paul started this epistle, he's talking about how sinful mankind is. Romans one twenty five. You see this creature and versus creator distinction here. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So this is mankind. Mankind exchanged the truth that they all know. We all know the truth about God, who he is, and that we should worship him and thank him. And they exchanged that for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. The creator is blessed forever. The creator is the blessed one. The creator is blessed and he's perfect and he's holy. But we are creatures and mankind is so depraved that he takes a creature and worships a creature. A statue. An animal. A tree. The world. People worship other people. Kings, queens, presidents, famous celebrities. That is the creator-creature distinction. So here's how Paul describes it. He uses this example from the Old Testament. Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will the thing that's been created say to the creator, how dare you do such a thing as you've done? Hardening people? Now the thing molded here, The thing molded in the text, that's one Greek word, and it's plasma in Greek. Plasma. We get our word, eventually, our word plastic from this. It's something that's moldable. It's a soft material. And 
the molder is the one who shapes that. He takes that plasma, he takes that soft material and he makes something out of it. He shapes it, he forms it, he fashions it to his liking, to something that is useful to him. And it would be completely absurd for that little plastic form to rise up and say, why did you make me like this? That would be ridiculous. My son, he has a 3D printer, a little printer, and he makes these figurines out of plastic, and he, and he puts the, the plastic in, and he programs it, and then it spits out this little figurine that he can use in board games. That would be completely ridiculous if he came down and said, Dad, this thing started yelling at me <laughs> that I made it the wrong way. And yet that is the example Paul uses here. Will the thing created... Say to his creator, why did you make me like this? Now he's quoting from different places in the Old Testament. Not just one verse. It's thought that he's using three, maybe four different verses here. Mostly from Isaiah. And in the case with Isaiah, God is speaking through his prophet Isaiah to Israel. Israel is complaining. And so let's look at some of these. Isaiah 29, 16. Does God not have the right to mold things as he sees fit? Isaiah 29, 16. We're going to be in Isaiah for a couple of more verses here. If you need a Bible, by the way, and you're visiting, there should be one under the chairs right there in front of you. If you look down. Isaiah 29, 16. Speaking of God, you turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? The potter is not the clay and the clay is not the potter. Should the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, He did not make me. Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. In other words, Israel, who are you to tell God what to do? Or that he's doing something wrong because he's bringing judgment upon Israel and Jerusalem. Let's go forward to Isaiah 45, 9. Another one with the same language. It comes up a lot here in the Old Testament. The potter and the clay. There's even an old hymn. We are the clay. You are the potter. Uh, Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to, to the one who contends with his maker. The one who fights against the maker. An earthenware vessel, a pot, among the vessels of earth. You're earth. You're made of dust. You're made of clay. You're made of dirt. You don't contend with your maker. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor pains? It's just ridiculous, right? We don't ask a woman who's going to labor, are you having a, a human or something else? Right? That would just be rude, number one, but also ridiculous. Last one, Isaiah 64, 8. Isaiah 64, 8. Such a great analogy that the writers of Scripture just keep using it to describe our relationship with God. But now, O Yahweh, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are our potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. And then he goes on to say, Do not be angry beyond measure, O Yahweh, nor remember iniquity forever. We're just clay. We're, we're pottery in God's hands. He created us. So the answer 
to the question here in verse 20 is, no, of course not. Of course the thing molded doesn't say to the one who molded it, why did you make me like this? You didn't see Pharaoh complaining to God, did you? The only complaints he had was, man, my people are suffering. And then he would harden his own heart. And God would harden him. And he would harden his own heart. And God would harden him. He lost all his strength and power because God's power was greater. God put his power and name on display. But Pharaoh wasn't saying, this is all God's fault. I'm a sinner because of God. And yet sometimes as Christians, we, we try so hard to get God off the hook because we think he's on the hook that we want to throw out verses or change the meaning of verses. Paul says, no, that's not the way to go about answering this question. Let's throw out the question because we are creatures and he is our creator. The third reason Paul throws it out as illegitimate is the sovereign authority of the potter. So he continues now in verse 21 with this potter versus clay language. But he adds a word, authority. Or maybe yours says right. Or does not the potter have authority over the clay? Maybe your translation says right over the clay. The Greek word is exousia. That means the state of control of something. It's really authority. It's, it's used later in Romans 13 to talk about the government having authority. And it's really the word sovereignty. We can say sovereignty. Someone who has control over everything is sovereign over that. They're sovereign over whatever it is they have control over. And God is the one who's in authority here. He's the potter. He has authority over the clay. He's the one who has the power and the right to do something, whatever he chooses. The potter has sovereignty over the clay to make of it whatever he desires. Now, this is pointing us back to Jeremiah 18.6, which also uses this potter and pottery description. Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does? He tells Jeremiah, go out and look at the potter and look how he works with the clay. And God says, can I not deal with you as this potter does, O Israel, declares Yahweh? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, the connection there, and I think why Paul doesn't quote it directly, is Paul's not saying that God is going to bring a judgment on Israel and God is going to bring a judgment on the church. That's not the connection here. He's saying, and pointing back to Jeremiah, the connection is God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over Israel. He created Israel. He can judge Israel. God is sovereign over mankind. He created mankind and he can judge mankind for his sin. That's the link. God's sovereignty. He has authority. He is sovereign. God has the right to do as he pleases. And we know the Bible says he's good and he's righteous and he's loving. So whatever he does must be in line with who he is. You know, we understand this perfectly when it comes to our rights. What we think we're sovereign over, right? Somebody tries to take our stuff. No, you don't have the right to do that. Government comes in, tries to take our guns. In Texas, you certainly do not have the authority to do that. We get upset at that. We're sovereign over our home, over our things. Communism, socialism, people understand they're wrong because they take away the rights of the people. But then when it comes to God's rights, when it comes to God's authority, oh no, that can't be. It can't be that God could do what he wants with his stuff. But we can do what we want with our stuff. See, we understand it at that level. That's all Paul is saying, that God is sovereign. 
that he can choose. And what he chooses is good. He's not unjust. He's not unrighteous. So he goes on. He says, or does not the powder have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? The word lump here is a mixture of substances. So sometimes it's used for baking. You mix the flour, you mix the water in, you make some dough. That's a a lump of dough. But in this case, he's talking about pottery. So this is a lump of clay, a lump of clay, basically dirt and water, so that he can use now this lump of clay to make pots. So the lump here represents all humanity. The lump represents all humanity in its sinful fallen state. Some will say, no, no, this is all humanity before the fall. I think it's humanity in its sinful fallen state based on the context, based on what he's already said about Pharaoh and the judgment he brings on Pharaoh, based on what he said in Romans 3, Romans 1, and so on. So the lump is sinful fallen humanity. And in fact, in verse 10, we get the idea of the lump, don't we, in Romans 9, 10, he says, and not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Same, same DNA, same father, same mother. There's two people, the twins. God chooses one and he rejects the other. Out of the same lump, God chooses one vessel of mercy and another is a vessel of wrath because he rejects him. That's the focus. He's not focusing on creation either. Some will go so far as to say, well, God is creating these pots just to destroy them. There's a couple answers you could give to such a question. You could say, well, actually, God doesn't destroy anybody. They go and get eternal punishment in hell forever for not believing in Christ. That's not annihilation. It's not completely destroyed. But the other one is to say that, look, Paul's focusing here on shaping the clay. Now, we know God ordains all things. And we know even evil coming into the world was ordained by God. But we also know that God is not sinful. James, I read to you last week, James 1 says that God doesn't tempt anyone. That he's perfectly light. He is glory and light and holiness. And he is not the author of sin. So we know that to be true. And Paul's not talking about where did evil come from. He's just simply saying, there's this lump of clay called sinful humanity. And God can take some and he can make that vessel a vessel of mercy. It receives inside of it God's mercy. And he can take another from the same lump of clay and make it a vessel of his wrath. Or here in this verse, honorable use and dishonorable use. God the potter, he shapes, he molds different types of vessels, different types of pots, different instruments for his purposes. Now in ancient times, an honorable vessel was something that was decorated beautifully. You would put it in your house. You would show the beauty of your house with a piece of pottery. It was to beautify your home. 2 Timothy 2.20 speaks of this. In a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of clay, and some to honor and some to dishonor. So the gold ones, the silver ones you put out, you make your house look beautiful. But then there's dishonorable ones as well. Now the honorable ones, this is Isaac, Jacob, already mentioned in the text, believing Jews, believing Gentiles. Now they're not honored because they've done something. Don't think, well, Jacob was such an honorable guy. That God called him and shaped him into a a vessel of honor. No, no. 
They're honorable because God decided. He chose them and he made them honorable in the sense that he showed mercy to them. Now there's also dishonorable vessels. Dishonorable vessels in the home were usually used to take out the trash with, menial chores, holding the waste of the house, including human waste. They're dishonorable. They're not gold. They're made of just clay. They don't have silver. They don't have decoration. There's no paint on them. In fact, Paul uses this same word in Romans 1. Speaking of unbelievers. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their females exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. So a dishonorable vessel in the context, those which God passes over. He doesn't have to do anything. They are already sinful. God doesn't cause them to be sinful. They chose to be sinful. And he simply passes over them in his rejection. Ishmael, Esau, Pharaoh, and the hardened Jews that are going to be mentioned when we get to Romans 10 and 11. Now you might say, but pastor, where does it say that we're already dishonorable? Where does it say that the lump is already dishonorable? Well, I I mentioned the context here. I mentioned the context in Romans 1 or Romans 3. Also, though, you can turn to Ephesians 2. Let's look at Ephesians 2. Go forward in your Bibles here. Same author, Paul. Here's what he says about us. In our natural state, because of Adam's fall, because we inherit sin, because we're depraved and we desire to sin, and we act upon it as soon as we can in life, He said, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead, not partially alive, completely dead. Slave to sin is the idea. In which you formerly walked, talking to believers, and this is who they were before they came to Christ. You formerly walked in the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. You know who that is? The devil, Satan. Before you came to Christ, believer, you were walking as a person, as a slave of Satan, whether you knew it or not. Paul says here, you are walking according to the rule of the power of the air, the spirit that is not working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And here he says, by nature, we're born with this, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. So if you take that, you take Romans 1, you take Romans 3, what he says in Romans 5 and 6 as well, Romans 7, you understand what he's saying. If you start with the truth that all mankind is sinful, does God have to act to cause people to go to hell? Yeah, he will act at the judgment. But he's not doing anything intentionally in their life. Well, he hardens. Yes, he does harden. But Pharaoh was already a pagan sinner long before God Hardened him. Now, God's not responding to what Pharaoh might do later, which is hardening his own heart. Pharaoh is already a sinner. God's not making him a sinner. So the focus here is on the lump of clay, sinful humanity. God, as the sovereign God, gets to choose. None of us deserve mercy. We're all sinful. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And yet he chooses some to save by his gracious mercy. That's the gospel. We can't be throwing out Romans 9. It it pertains to the gospel here. This is what God did for us. We're getting a behind-the-curtains look just for a moment here at what God has done for us. Believer. The rest, he passes over. He lets them go to their end. And God has the right and authority and sovereignty to do both. 
Okay, lastly, and this is the, the biggest one. Number four, the glorious purpose of God in election. The glorious purpose. So Paul doesn't answer the objector outright. He says, hold on. First of all, you shouldn't have asked the question. Who are you? And he goes on to develop his argument out here. And then this last one, he goes even further now, not to talk about what has happened, but why God has done it. Here's why God has done it. He gives us the purpose for which God has done what he has done. And what if God wanting? So stop right there. God wants, God wills, God decrees something. And this is the start of a long rhetorical question. And Paul doesn't finish the question. And it, it, it stumped people for a long time that read Greek and commentators in ancient times and today. All Paul's doing here, though, is he's starting a rhetorical question. And like Paul does, he doesn't finish it. That's why in your Bible, you probably have a long dash at the end of verse 23. He just doesn't finish it because the answer is obvious, right? The idea is, what if God chooses to do such and such with his own pottery to glorify himself? What can you say to that? That's what we have to supply at the end of the rhetorical question. What would you say to that? If God has done all these things for his glory, how would you answer that? You, you can't answer that, man. God is God and he's doing it for his glory because it is in fact the truth. You can't answer it. Now, some translations say, although. The NASB and the NIV have, although. What if God, although, wanting? That's not really a, a great translation there because Although is a concession, it implies that the God has chosen to be patient more than he's chosen to be wrathful. And that's not really the point Paul is making here, as we will see. Paul gives us three purposes. Three purposes that God hardens, that God rejects sinners. There's three purposes. The third one's the ultimate. But first of all, the first two, he says, God wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known. God hardens. God rejects some because he wants to demonstrate something. He wants to show the whole world, the whole creation something. Believers and unbelievers. He wants to make his power known. His power to punish. His power of his punishment, his wrath. Those not chosen for salvation will go to judgment for their own sin. Not just because God didn't choose them, but for their own sin. They will go and have God's final wrath. In Romans 1, we looked at his ongoing wrath in this life. The passing over, passing over, passing over. Here, though, Paul's talking about the final wrath. The eschatological wrath. The wrath that's coming in the future of eternal punishment. Beaky and Smalley in their systematic theology describe God's wrath as God's holy hatred to punish all who transgress his law. It's an exercise of his righteous love. Do you realize that? Wrath is not really an attribute of God. It's an exercise of his love, his holiness, his righteousness. His wrath, they say, is the activity of his infinitely intense righteousness towards all who oppose him. Genuine love must hate evil. God's holy, righteous love hates evil. And he will punish evil and he will punish the sinner who's committed evil. If they don't come to Christ, they will suffer God's wrath. And God wants to demonstrate his wrath on vessels of wrath. That, that makes his power look great. That makes his glory great. His wrath. He has an eternal zeal for his own glory. Now in, in us, that would be wrong to, to puff ourselves up to make us look good. But God is the ultimate being. 
God is our creator. God is perfectly holy. There's no sin in him to make his name great. That's what you would expect. If he is perfect, if he is supreme, if he is glorious, which he is, then of course he would make his name great. Well, God has a zeal for the glory of his name and a zeal, a jealousy for his name that he exercises an intense righteousness. That's wrath towards all who oppose him. That's sinners. And so Paul says to demonstrate his wrath, to make his power known. Those are the two purposes right there. Demonstrate his wrath, make his power known. He's endured with much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction. So these vessels in the past tense have been prepared for destruction. It's not talking again about creation here necessarily. He's just saying in the past, these vessels were prepared. They're vessels of wrath. They're going to eventually receive God's wrath. And they were prepared for that. They were taken from that lump of sinful humanity. And they will go on as vessels of wrath. Now it's passive, but it means that God is the one doing it. God is not actively making them sin, but God is choosing to reject them. And the analogy here, he's shaping the lump. And it is in the passive here because I think Paul doesn't want to put too much emphasis here and try to say that God is doing anything wrong. He's simply saying they've been prepared, not by themselves. Ultimately, God is over all things. Some people say, well, this is just them preparing themselves. That's true. All sinners to their unbelief prepare themselves as vessels of wrath. But this is God in eternity past. And it's simply his choice of rejection and hardening. As judgment. So he's endured with them much patience. Much patience. What does that mean? That God would have been perfectly just if he wiped out humanity after Adam and Eve's sin. See, that's where we're, we're so backwards in our thinking. We think God must somehow perpetuate humanity as long and forever and ever. Well, we know his word says that he will, but he would have been righteous if he took out humanity after. Adam and Eve sinned. Isn't that why they hid? They were scared. They were scared of what? Of God's holiness. He's a consuming fire. His, his zeal, his wrath, he would have been just. But he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath. Knowing that a lot, most we could say of humanity would reject him. He has endured. He has let them live full lives. We see in the scriptures and we know cases where God, why? Do you let sinful people who hurt others live so long and they still don't come to saving faith? Why does God allow such suffering, such sinful people in the world who are killing others and killing babies and harming Christians? Why? He's enduring with much patience. Not so that they'll come to saving faith. That's in Romans 2, 4. But in this case, he's saying that he knows they're vessels of wrath, but he's enduring with them what? He's enduring with him to demonstrate his wrath. He just said it in the previous part of the verse, right? To demonstrate his wrath, to make his power known. In other words, in punishing sinners, God's power and wrath are made known. They're displayed. What kind of judge would he be if he didn't show his wrath? If he didn't make his power known? Would we think God was a righteous judge if he let everyone off the hook? Not because they believed in Christ, but just, just because. 
Now that's an unrighteous judge. He endured with much patience Judas and Pontius Pilate and Pharaoh and all sinners who are dishonorable vessels, who reject him, who spit in his face, who hate God. And he endures with much patience because they serve a purpose too. They will glorify God too. Not in the same way believers will. They will glorify God and their eternal punishment. But now the ultimate purpose. Quickly, the last verse here. Verse 23. And. And. And the way the Greek is structured here. This is clearly the ultimate purpose. In order that he might make known the riches of his glory. Upon vessels of mercy. Which he prepared beforehand for glory. So in having been prepared for destruction. That's a completely different Greek word than the one right here in verse 23. Prepared beforehand for glory. Two different words. I think Paul chose two different words to emphasize two different ways that God acts. One, he rejects and he lets them harden themselves and he hardens them as well as punishment. Here though, this is not a passive word. It's active. God actively chose them beforehand for glory. In other words, we could just say this is predestination. God predestined them for glory. The whole reason that he endured with great patience, vessels of wrath, is to make his glory known upon these vessels of mercy. This is God's predestination. Look at Romans 8.30. Romans 8.30, he says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Or in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Same exact word as he uses right here in Romans 9. 23. God prepared all the works that we would do beforehand so that we would walk in them. You ever heard the catechism question? The first one, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the chief end of man. That's, that's the reason God saves us so that we would glorify him forever. Well, what about those who don't get saved? What about those who reject God? Well, Steve Lawson, I think, has a good illustration. He says, these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction is like the black velvet behind the diamond of God's mercy that makes it shine brighter. He tells the story of going to get his wife a wedding ring and all these diamonds get brought out and he just doesn't like them. They don't look that that great. And then suddenly the jeweler gets this black velvet cloth out and he takes tweezers and puts the diamond on there and suddenly the diamond lights up. And you see all the colors and all the sparkle. That's what Paul's saying here. This is the the closest you're going to get to seeing why God let evil into the world. Because it makes his glory shine all the more. It makes us love him all the more. Ephesians 2, 6, and 7 That God raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. God has decreed that it is best done through choosing some and rejecting others. Because if there was no sin in the world and God says, oh, you're going to have all these riches. Okay, great. You know, wonderful. No, the backdrop is, if you didn't receive his mercy, you would have eternal punishment. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Get on my face and worship the Lord. Jonathan Edwards, let us therefore labor to submit to the sovereignty of God. 
God insists that his sovereignty be acknowledged by us. That even in this great matter which so nearly and infinitely concerns us as our eternal salvation. This is the stumbling block on which thousands fall and perish. For if we are to go on contending with God about his sovereignty, it may be our eternal ruin. It is absolutely necessary that we should submit to God as our absolute sovereign and the sovereign over our souls as one who may have mercy on whom he will have mercy and harden whom he will. God does all things to glorify his name. And he has the most glory in letting sinners continue in their sin over thousands of years now so that he might save some that he's chosen to save And that reflects his glory the most. Why does God let evil come into the world? Why does God permit sin? Why does God continue to endure sinners? So that his glory might be displayed in the vessels of mercy. That's the best answer we're going to get to the question of free will and man's free will. We'll see commands to believe. We'll see that we have to take the gospel to people in chapter 10. But as far as God's answer... He's given us that in Romans 9. And we have to be content with that. God is absolutely sovereign. And man is absolutely responsible for his sin. We may not be able to reconcile it completely. But we trust in the wisdom of God nonetheless. That's why Paul finishes out this section in Romans 11.33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. That's where we live. We can't call God to the dock. We can't make him answer all the questions that we want him to answer. In fact, that's sinful to do so. We accept what he's given us. His ways are inscrutable. They're unsearchable. We're not going to understand God. He's not a calculus problem that we can work out on paper and try to get the exact answer to. He's God. You really think you can figure out God? Paul says, no, not at all. Now, if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, this sermon was for believers. The epistle to the Romans is for believers. But in this epistle is the gospel. For the person who's not put their trust in Christ, they need to hear and believe in Jesus Christ. You've heard of Christ. You've heard of God today and his sovereignty. But how do you know you're elect? How do you know? No one knows until they die. You don't know. Except that you believe in Christ. If you believe in Christ and you truly have faith in him, you know. But as an unbeliever, you do not know unless you believe. So don't go around saying, well, God has hardened me. And I, No, you're the old man that Paul's talking to here. You come to saving faith in Christ and you know you're elect. You have assurance that you're elect. Those are the only people who know. Everyone else, they shrug it off till they believe. So don't sit around shrugging it off. Believe. Trust in Christ, unbeliever. Trust in him. Come to Jesus. And this applies to you. You're a vessel of mercy. Right now, you're a vessel of wrath. As far as you know, as far as you're concerned, you're a vessel of wrath if you don't believe in Jesus. So let's pray now that that would indeed happen amongst us. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you that as believers, we can know that we are vessels of mercy. If we truly believe in Christ... Lord, we pray for those, though, who don't believe in Jesus here today. They're vessels of wrath, as far as we can tell. And we pray that they would have a changed heart, that they would come to saving faith in Christ, that you would save people among us, that you would indeed change hearts. 
But for those of us who do believe, let us accept this truth. Let us recognize your sovereignty and our responsibility. And help us, Lord, to love your word. Every jot, every tittle, all of Romans 9 and all of Romans and all of the Bible. We accept it as truth. It is sufficient. It is all that we need for life and godliness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.